Greetings from Arkansas. I just wanted to first share my thankfulness to God for each of you. These podcasts have really helped bring clarity to convictions that I have had, as well as convicted me in blind spots that I was unaware of. May the light of Christ our Lord continue to shine in and upon you each day, fully displaying his love to the world. Secondly, I had a question concerning hierarchy in the church. I visited the community there and noticed I never heard the title of apostle, prophet, evangelist, or pastor being used when mentioning someone. The most I have heard is brother or sister or maybe minister. I've always admired that and believe that it really brings a truer sense of unity since we all have a measure of the Spirit. Now, in my experience, there's been a structure of hierarchy where you have the office of apostle being the highest rank, followed by bishop or pastor, prophet, evangelist, and teacher. In Matthew 23, 1 through 12, Jesus talks about how we shouldn't refer to ourselves as teachers, but as brothers serving one another in love. So how does the function of the fivefold ministry flow in your view? Is it a hierarchy or are each equally important? Hmm. Well, so first of all, um, we would say that there is a difference between the order of giftings and the authority of a person. So as a, as a, brother as a person i am your brother you are my brother regardless of the gifting that you may have which i might be submitting to Amen. so jesus doesn't want our identity to be our gift he wants our identity to be our belonging to him and our belonging to each other because he is our father we are each other's brothers and it's not right to throw around the labels of our gifts as if to elevate ourselves as a human being, as a person above the other, even though we may have a function and a gift from God that in some area they submit to. So to ask, is it a hierarchy? Uh, I, the short answer is no. To say, is there no order or linear order in it? That's not true either. It's complex and as well it should be. It's like a family. It's not this simple binary, either this or that. So we would say that the term bishop, it's not a term we use in our setting, but it, it, we would use the term elder instead. And bishop refers to the fact that, yes, you may have this gift, and yes, you may have good fruit, but you're supposed to fill an overseeing role, a mature overseeing role in this gift that goes beyond just the scope of a, of a, a local congregation. So that the term elder is what we would use to describe someone who is, is filling a capacity for the body more broadly on a constitutional level uh, that is more than just for a local area. In terms of the order of the gifts, we don't have to speculate on, on, on the order of the giftings themselves because Paul says first apostles and second prophets, and he goes on through the list there. But that's, again, more complex than it sounds because we are not relating simply to a person's gift. So let's hypothetically say you're an apostle, which you don't claim to be and aren't serving as in this church, but let's say you're an apostle. Uh, well, that means that you have a gift that if I were a pastor, I would be in submission to. But it also means that you're going to have to relinquish to the pastor the role of pastoring, or you can't fill your role as a church planter, a foundations giver, um, 
and so on and so forth, a, a revelator, whatever that may be. So in a, in, a, in a sense, an apostle has a gift that might have supervision in certain matters, but he's also got to submit to those who have the other gifts, or else he can't function as an apostle, he'll function as one of the other four. In the same manner, you're not just your gift. You're a son to somebody. And the Bible's requiring you to submit because you're a son. In another way, you're younger than somebody in the church, and the Bible's requiring you to submit because of their age. In another way, you're just a brother like all the rest of us, and you are accountable. Your character and person is as accountable, if not more accountable, than anybody in the body to rebuke, to scrutiny, and so on and so forth. So we see that David was both a prophet and a king. So if you look at his gifts, he had the power to kill Nathan, but Nathan is older than him. So though David's gifts exceeded Nathan's, yet in his personal life, Nathan had access to rebuke him and send him to his face. In the same way, our gifts do not cover us personally. They refer to an area that we cover in the church. Our person, our character is covered by others in the body. We don't cover ourselves in that sense. So an apostle or a prophet, we, we subscribe to the linear order that Paul gives regarding how gifts should function and submit to each other. But we would also say that, uh, and, and in addition to that, we would say that an elder, what he's calling a bishop, what we would call an elder, is someone who has moved into a constitutional place of covering that generally is beyond merely a local sphere. And we would emphasize that no matter the gift, the, 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 the linear priority of the gifting does not entail that you are not submitting personally. That doesn't take care of your personal submission. The other members of the body do that. Amen. So hopefully that, hopefully that answers this question. Thank you for your encouragement and for uh, writing in from Arkansas. We love you guys. Amen. Next question. <clears throat> Good afternoon. Thank you so much for this broadcast. The Lord is moving in no small part because of your love and commitment to serve us. Your prayers are felt, but ever more needed. Over our time knowing the fellowship, one question that arises every time we visit you and then go back to the culture shock of our life here in Nashville is this. We live in the Christian bubble and have for years. However, I have been seeking the Lord to accurately understand the subculture that we live in. Here's the point of my question. In John 15, 19, there seems to be a great distinction between being of the world as opposed to being in the world as in John 17, 11. In our culture, it seems that Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, being in the world is directly related to only sinful desires. For example, seeking enjoyment and engagement in what the culture participates in, like sporting events or entertainment, though not inherently sinful, seems as if we are not living for another kingdom. The lines of distinction are ever narrowing. I feel many of those I love and their families are slowly being boiled like frogs. Others I know seem to think that if the families we know look the part, live well, are responsible, and somewhat separate in their thinking, schooling, and church participation, this is being kingdom-minded and separate from the world. I do find an uneasiness in the spirit with this thinking. I know I may be preaching to the choir on this, but I value your perspective. 
Amen. Okay, so I'm going to try to speed up a little bit because we're a little pressed for time. But Kevin, it seems to me like she or he is saying that um, what is the difference between being in the world or of the world? And they're then saying some Christians have a reductionist view that says you're only of the world if you have these gross attitudes mentioned in Ephesians 4.22. Okay, if that were the case, then the Pharisees would not have been of the world. But the Pharisees were of the world. Amen. So what it means to be of the world is, is it certainly includes the gross attitudes, lust, and so on and so forth. But that, that doesn't comprise all that it means to be of the world, which is forbidden. So in, 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 in John, in 1 John uh, 4, Jesus says that you are, uh, I'm sorry, John says they are of the world because they speak from the viewpoint of the world. So in this, we see that to be of the world is to have a certain perspective. It's to have the myths that we were just discussing. It's to have this outlook. In, in, in 1 John 5, he says that we are not of the world because God has given us an understanding. So in this, again, he's tying it to an outlook, a worldview. We are not of the world because we have an understanding. We don't speak from the viewpoint of the world as he said in the previous chapter. In John 17, Jesus says that they are not of the world because they have God's word. They had Christ's word, which has sanctified, literally separated them from the world. So in these, uh, uh, also in, in, in James, he says, you're an adulteress if you try to be a friend of the world. Um, and, and in this case, it's God's spirit living inside of us that is going to help us make this separation. So to be of the world is first and foremost a viewpoint, understanding, um, an issue of truth, word, spirit. It's not primarily drawing the line in some convenient place that says this is of it, this is not of it. It's really the outlook in our lives. It's, it's the worldview. It's seeking to be the friend of the world. It's the desire. Are we with Jesus in saying uh, that we are willing to go outside the camp and bear the reproach? Or are we the captives of this peer pressure that exists in the world? Do we seek to make ourselves the friends of the world? Then according to James, we are of the world. Do we, do we have the viewpoint of the world? Do we speak from the viewpoint of the world so that the world will hear us? Then according to John, we are of the world. Have we lost the word that brings separation, literally sanctification? Then we are of the world. It's not as simple as we don't have these yucky aspects in our lives, so we're not of the world. We're only in it. No, I think it's a little more spiritual and complex than that. Hopefully, hopefully that's helpful. Amen. Amen. Well, this, this next question <clears throat> ties in well with this. Uh, good afternoon. Can you clarify definitions and differences between justification and sanctification within the context of salvation? Thank you for all your time and dedication to this forum. It is a blessing to us all. Amen. So justification and sanctification, we would see as not two separate things that are occurring at different points in a linear progression. Instead, we would see them as occurring concurrently. And they are, they are two aspects of the big thing that is occurring that is our relationship with Jesus. So we would say that justification happens 
justification as they're describing it is the imputation of the righteousness that we lack. But that is only attributed to us or granted to us so long as sanctification is in process. So he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So our static status of perfection with God is prerequisite on an ongoing progressive status of becoming more like God. So I think erroneously, modern theologians will often draw this stark contrast between justification and sanctification by saying that justification is the sole work of God, whereas sanctification, they will say, that, that's something we do. But that is unbiblical. They are drawing that line erroneously because Scripture teaches us that sanctification is as much the proprietary work and act of God as justification. We are sanctified by the Spirit. It is the work of God. It is not something we can do of ourselves. And they're drawing the line between works and grace in the wrong place. Grace is whatever is done whether we participate or not, it's whatever is done not by human power. Grace doesn't describe what is not done. It describes how it's done. Is it done by the, the power of God or is it done by the, the means of men? So justification is the imputation of everything we lack while sanctification becoming more like the Lord is ever increasing. Of course, as it says, without sanctification, they will not see the Lord. So this has got to be a continuing process. There are many scriptures I could go through here that I have here, but it says in 1 Corinthians 1, it says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So this is the work of God. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he, that is Christ, might sanctify her. So sanctification is not some self-improvement project we do after we've got our salvation settled. It's something that God is doing in our lives as much as he is doing the justification through Christ at the cross. Many other scriptures, but let's move on. Amen. Thank you so much for the sacrifice y'all are making to bring these broadcasts to us. <clears throat> I appreciate the teaching and the clarity you are bringing to the word of God. The parable of the shrewd manager is found in Luke 16. It would seem in that parable that dishonesty is being lifted up as a good thing. Because of his failures, the manager was removed from his position by the master. The manager's solution to this dilemma and loss of income is clearly dishonest, and yet the master commended him for it. Frankly, I find it difficult to understand this parable and wonder if you can shed light on it. Thank you. Amen. That's a, that's a tough one, but I think it's actually quite clear if we, if we understand what's being said. <clears throat> there is a... Um, there is a message that you can probably find on the website or the app that is called the Eternal Exchange. Um, and I elaborate that passage at enormous length, <laughs> probably too much. But let me just say this. The way I see it is that Jesus is trying to tell us that money is never an end of itself, that it is not worthy if it is our aim. But Jesus is saying, when money becomes meaningful or worthy is when it is used to build relationships. So he's saying, make friends for yourself by 
means or by use of unrighteous mammon, so that when it, money, fails, they, your friends, will help you make it to heaven. And what he's showing in the unjust steward is that he knew how to suffer a loss in, in, in profits in order to gain friends for trouble that was coming. He's not celebrating what people are calling dishonesty, and I'm not sure that that is a valid criticism. He is celebrating that the man was willing to suffer financial loss for relational security. And he's saying Christians should do the same thing. Christians should be loose with their money in order to be strong in their relationships. And that is the proper use. That is God's divine purpose for money in a Christian culture. Is it there for your pleasure? No. He does give things for our enjoyment. That's an element, but that's not the prime purpose of it. The prime function of money is to build relationships that help you make it to heaven. Amen. All right, next question. In the recent sermon posted, The Coming Reset and Opportunity, you stated that the plague caused people to doubt the expression of God that they had come to know through the church. Could you expound upon the dynamics of why that is? I was speaking of the bubonic plague, and I was speaking of how it, in, in that sermon, I was speaking of how the bubonic plague became the trigger, the catalyst that accelerated and in many ways um, launched the, uh, the Renaissance as we know it. And it was, it was where the church was completely separated from the spirit. It was totally devoid of the anointing. And so they could not bring a word or a grace that was equal to the tragedy. And what they did bring was often hocus pocus and ridiculous. And people looked at these instruments of divine grace as stupid, clueless fools, kind of like we looked at science during COVID, like you guys do not know what you're talking about. The church sat in that place, but they sat there without the gifts of the spirit. They sat there without the anointing. You can look back and you can see exceptions to this. I would point to a largely marginalized character named Savonarola, who was a righteous priest in the church of that day. And he preached that the debauchery and hedonism and profligacy occurring in Florence, incidentally, through the revo banking revolution that had occurred through the, uh, the de' Medici, uh, he preached that it was going to bring an unprecedented calamity. And in fact, he was right. It was the explosion of the banking and available credit that allowed for the increase in commerce, and it was the international commerce that traded goods from infected areas and brought it into Western Europe and such. So there was this outlier. God had a witness in the church, but the Catholic Church as a whole was not tuned into the Spirit. In fact, the Pope tried to kill Savonarola, and on the day when he was going to burn to death, they had already lit the fires and he was, he was going to be burned in the public square. He prophesied that God is not going to let this happen today. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a cloud burst and put out the fire. And the people of Florence were so terrified that they literally fled in, in, in panic and they released Savonarola. I think it was less than a year later that they tortured him on the strapedo. Uh, they burned his feet until all the bones fell out and they eventually killed him. And his prophecy that judgment was going to come on what was happening in Florence in the, in the spits and sputters of the, of the Renaissance, it came true. 
but the church as a whole were they were comprised of a bunch of clueless buffoons at the top so they were good people there were there were saintly people who were laying their lives down willing to die in order to serve those who had the plague and god even protected some of them but as an institution, the church did not have a prophetic word from God. They did not anticipate it. They killed the man who did anticipate it. And the church often prescribed stupid remedies that never worked and declared that you'd be safe if you did this and you'd be safe if you... It was hocus pocus. It was as dumb as the science of that day um, so or of, of our day. So what happened is here the plague comes right when people are being told you know, it doesn't matter. God doesn't care how you behave. Conscience, that's, that's just a, a figment that's been imposed on you. And so in, this, in, the, in, in the aftermath of this horrible plague and, 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 and the, the embarrassment of the church's wisdom and advice, Christians uh, and believers and uh, citizens of the world said, you know what? You're a bunch of idiots. I'm going to believe these, these uh, enlightenment philosophers because you don't know what you're talking about. And in, in large part, it was true. And so there was the emergence of the arcane sciences trying to grow into something more pure uh, through Boyle and, and, and all of that that was unfolding at the same time. There was a lot of hermeticism, a lot of witchcraft, because they didn't separate uh, between the witchcraft and, and medicine at that point. It was, it was still a lot of witchcraft. And, and yet people are opening their minds and hearts to new ideas because the, the religion and spirituality they had trusted for centuries seems to have just failed them. But it didn't fail them. Fail them. God had a wit witness and a voice. They just killed him. Hmm. That's what I was referring to. Amen. Good afternoon. Uh, this question is three related parts. The first part is, is marriage a salvific imperative? No. Okay. <laughs> Obeying God is a salvific imperative. If God tells you to marry, you probably ought to obey him. But no, of course not. Paul wasn't married. Jesus wasn't married. Amen. So, and if not, what should an unmarried... <laughs> Uh, Christian man or woman's life be devoted to? The Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 17, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 7, there is no 1 Corinthians 17. 1 Corinthians 7, he says that uh, he who marries will serve his spouse, and she who marries will serve her spouse. They will live concerning, concerned about how they might please their spouse. But he says they, those who do not marry will serve the Lord. So the reason not to marry is if God has given you a special grace not to marry, and if thereby he has given you a special calling to serve him, to serve his people in the way that the single women served Jesus and the apostles in caring for their needs, in the, in the way that the apostle Paul served the church in meeting its needs. So it's saying you have a place in the family of God, but it's not the typical place. It's not the place that is a given in a pattern. Instead, it's an exceptional place. Paul says that no one should do this. Speaking to men, he says you should not do this unless you ha have the grace. But if the grace is there, then you, should, then you can serve the Lord with greater focus. It doesn't mean that the pattern of human existence is not still for men and women to marry. That is the pattern. But, you know, there, God allows for exceptions. And, and those exceptions are not something to be embarrassed of or, or feel like a failure about. It's, it's an exception of a higher purpose of a, of a greater focus that God has called you to, and you can fulfill that in service to his body as the Apostle Paul did. Amen. What does the scripture that says that a woman will be saved through childbirth mean? There, I'm not going to assert that God has, has revealed to me personally some definitive, conclusive uh, angle on that, but I think it's relevant that 
the term there, the phrasing that he's using, saved through childbirth, is exactly the same phrasing uh, as Simeon Cunningham pointed out to me recently that he's using in um, 1 Peter 3.21 when he says that we are saved through water, that, that Noah and his sons were saved through water. In that example, um, Peter is not saying that they were saved from water only. He is saying that he's likening it to baptism, which he says now saves you, same word. He's saying that they were saved by doing it. It's not that they were saved from it. They were saved by doing it. And I think that in the general pattern, uh, which we just pointed out has exceptions, I think in the general pattern of human existence that something wonderful happens between a wife and a husband in birth. And that something wonderful is prophesied to Eve at the curse at the garden. When she is told, when the Lord says, I will greatly multiply your conception and your desire will be for your husband. I see an inferred linkage there that somehow in giving birth, she's going to turn back and, and help rediscover the order that was broken when she was deceived and led him also into sin. But through birth, through the reduction, through the pain of birth, she's going to turn back to her husband and they're going to rediscover the proper order of relationships. And I believe that in general, that that is a, that is a, a, a system that God has used to help bring spiritual salvation to people by helping wives turn to their husbands. Doesn't mean that a woman's not saved if she's not married, and it doesn't mean you're not saved if you don't have a kid. That's, that's an extrapolation that doesn't harmonize other scriptures that would undermine that. But it does mean that this is a meaningful rhythm, pattern, mechanism in nature whereby God helps to save us from the inversion of order that occurred in the fall and turn us back. I am disinclined to believe he's saying any woman who has these good attitudes will not come under suffering, will not come under even death. I'm not excluding that. I'm disinclined to believe that that's what it's saying. And I think that uh, I could point to scriptures that would challenge that, but uh, it's possible, but I I'm disinclined to believe that. However, I believe that God can lift powerful scriptures out of their original setting to speak to us personally things that are very relevant, that are, are from him. So regardless of whether Paul's intention was to say that every woman will be saved physically in childbirth, or whether he was saying that this is a spiritual instrument of salvation. Regardless of that, God may still speak to an individual or to a couple that that scripture applies to them physically for an, a specific birth or for all their births. And I allow that as well. And I think there's precedent in scripture for the quoting of, of Habakkuk, I will work a work in your day, which you would not believe. When that's stated, it's stated negatively. When it's quoted, it's quoted positively in Acts. We certainly quote it positively. You've got Job's friends whose whole attitude and reasoning was rejected by God and sinful. And yet Paul quotes them favorably when he says he will catch the wise in his own craftiness. So when we're establishing doctrine, we must take things in specific context. We must understand what he's really saying, or else we can't establish a doctrine. When we're just letting God speak to us, 
a billboard can speak to us. The writing on a, on a truck zooming by at 70 miles an hour can speak to us. And certainly scriptures can speak to us out of context. Yes, I said that out of context. Um, God uses that and scripture itself is evidence of that. So in terms of forming a doctrine, I'm disinclined to t interpret that practically in terms of letting God use it to speak to us personally. Just listen to whatever the spirit says. Amen. Homestead Heritage as a U.S. congregation fits into the more Pentecostal, Arminian, Anabaptist camp within the U.S. evangelical milieu. <laughs> Those are three camps. He just made one. That's, that's <laughs> fun. Okay. Um, with that said, I'm not saying that there are no cross-cultural or international elements in Homestead Heritage. There are, however, the main ideological influences, doctrine and such, that come from Waco in the U.S., you mentioned unity, so here's my question. Are you open to intentionally cultivating relationships, trust, brotherly love, and fellowship with conservative, Bible-believing, Christ-following Christian congregations and denominations aligned with differing doctrinal positions? For example, non-Pentecostal Orthodox Trinitarians, Calvinians, haven't heard that one, <laughs> as an onlooker, it seems to me and others like me, like me that we would need to conform triggered by your theological premises to your doctrine in order to fit into your one body of Christ unity ideal. Is there truth to this perception? Is there some skepticism and resistance on your parts to actively engage and build relationships with such theologically differing evangelical camps? Well, not as much skepticism as I hear in your question. Um, but <clears throat> to be fair, we believe that Christians of all theological persuasions, ourselves included, should foster conversation, dialogue, uh, trust, relationship, and common ground with all other believers. And the answer to your question is yes. We, we, have, had, um, we have had Orthodox Trinitarians preach from our pulpit within the last 12 months. We have had people who disagree with us on half of theological issues preach from our pulpit, teach in our seminars. And if you are a, if you're a close observer of our, our, uh, our journey, you've, you should already know that. Um, and agreement or uniformity of belief is not a prerequisite in our view for relationship. We want to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace until we attain to the unity of the faith. But we don't see the unity of the spirit as the goal, but as the means to the goal. The goal is the unity of the faith. And the unity of the faith is only going to come when those five gifts that he listed as the means for bringing it are also functioning. So I'm not going to pretend that those doctrines uh, which are unbiblical are of equal value as the doctrines which are biblical. I am going to contend vigorously for the faith as I see it. But of course, of course, we're going to uh, uh, interact with and love and support and fellowship with um, believers who are serving God from a pure heart of all stripe. And I think we do that a lot. And uh, the fact that we are absolutely convinced of our position does not mean that we uh, preclude friendship or further dialogue or even further insight from those who see things differently. I think that it is almost laughable to combine the three groups that you said we're basically of into one as if they are one. They are not one, 
And if you doubt that, you should ask them. Um, so yes, we have a lot of common ground with the early Methodists. Uh, we have a lot of common ground with the early Baptists. We have a lot of common ground with the early um, Anabaptists, and we certainly have the Pentecostal experience and share a lot of common ground with them. But at the end of the day, we could find common ground with most of the Christian groups that you, that you name. But until we come to the unity of the faith, let's try to be nice, which I suppose is part of what it means to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace. Amen. Amen. Can I ask a follow-up question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So where I come from, there's very much a, um, okay, I get that, but, you know, you've got to call out false teachers, mm -hmm. you know, and if you associate with false teachers, you're somehow, without calling out their false teaching, then you're in agreement with them. What would you say to that? Well, I think the church should be informed, but I think that associate is a, is a difficult word because Jesus ate with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and so on and so forth. So I, I don't think that we are supposed to, uh, I think we should teach and believe what God has given us with all our hearts and believe it is the truth and the, and the only truth. But I don't think that we have to capitalize on what divides us. I think we should, we should capitalize on what unites us. We want to build networks. We want to build the body of Christ. We want to see more conversation, not less. And we don't like to be pigeonholed. We don't like to be categorized. And we would rather not do that to others. But we're still going to disagree vehemently and believe that the doctrines they espouse will ultimately bear bad fruit. And when we look at the fruit in Christianity, we are not enamored. We are not one bit enamored with the trajectory of the past 50 years in Christianity. And we do not look at those groups that he names and say, oh, well, those doctrines are sure making the difference. Let's consider them. If the fruit were different, we would be more open to flexibility on the, on the belief. But we try to know it by its fruit. We hope people will do the same for us. Okay. Thank you for the questions. And uh, keep sending them in. We'll do our best to answer. God bless you. Lord willing, you'll see us next time.